Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, January 2nd. Asted Herndon from the New York Times kicks off our coverage of this presidential election year for the ages. Asted Herndon is a national politics reporter and host of the politics podcast, The Run-Up. In 2019, he was the Times campaign reporter for Kamala Harris's presidential campaign, among other things that he's done. Recent podcast episodes have included interviews with Iowa evangelicals, Remember, the Iowa caucuses are less than two weeks away. We'll sample from that podcast episode, as well as the one with the very local, really hyper-local focus group he did. It was at his own Thanksgiving dinner on the surprisingly large percentage of black voters considering Donald Trump, if you believe a New York Times poll that came out a little before Thanksgiving. And we'll talk about the whole Nikki Haley Civil War thing, too. Asted, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for starting 2024 with us. Happy New Year and welcome back to WNYC. Happy New Year to you. Thank you uh, so much for having me. This is a great way to start the year. Well, the first vote up is the Iowa caucuses, Monday, January 15th. Martin Luther King Day, by the way, though in Iowa, I guess that doesn't stop them from having an election. (laughs) And we will play a clip of um, one of your podcast episodes from Iowa. But is the headline here that there is really no drama in this first vote of the year because Trump is such a shoe in for first place? Or would that be missing some important things to watch for on January 15th? I mean, I certainly think that's the headline. And I mean, to your point, all of this has really been reliant on polling over the past year. We have not seen really any of these other candidates threaten Donald Trump's lead, both in Iowa and in some of these early states. And it's actually grown over the over the year in 2023 to the point where we now have some Iowans who are backing other candidates, even kind of directly acknowledging that a big win for Donald Trump in the state would feel a, a kind of like a start of a more coronation primary process than a really competitive process that I think a lot of people expect it. And I think that's important to say when we started the year, I remember talking to you in kind of early 2023 about some of the reporting we were doing, um, you know, Republicans on the national level were certain they were going to get a really competitive primary where Donald Trump would at least be challenged, that they thought there was enough people in the party who after the midterms were upset with him or were nervous about the coming indictments, that it would mean he would at least uh, face a sweat. But the thing that they didn't expect was that the the reality of the indictments have caused so many of the base to rally around him. And then the other candidates haven't really caught on. And so we enter 2024 with much more of a Trump dominant space that I think a lot of the Republicans expected uh, coming into this primary to the point where Iowa now feels like a question of how much will Donald Trump win by rather than who's going to be at the top. I'm glad you remember coming on with us to start last year. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do. That was awesome. (laughs) That was January 5th, 2023. So uh, it's like a New Year's tradition and and, uh, the beginning of the year here on the show, Asted and me. All right. So you were in Iowa a few months ago when Tim Scott was still in the race. And Mm -hmm. Scott was probably the most clearly religious uh, candidate in the field, at least openly so. And Iowa is known for its large evangelical Republican base. So you had this exchange with some voters at the Iowa State Fair 
Listeners, this is a minute and a half clip. It starts with a question from Asted. If you could describe what Trump's message is, what is it? You know, if I know that Tim Scott's is inspiration and hope, it seems like Trump's is different. What's Trump promising that is resonating with you? He loves this country. He always has. He says, I will fight every day of my life for this country. He's promising a fight. A fight. And we are in a fight. We are in a war. We are in a war. Whether we want to believe it or not, um, this, this country's in trouble. What are the sides of the war? Yeah, what, to what you. Makes you, yeah, what makes you, yeah. We are fighting for our children. Um, the education in this country is deplorable. Um, and I think this latest movie, The Sound of Freedom, has exposed big time what's going on with Hollywood, pedophilia, trafficking, um, and we're not stopping it. And so I see what you're saying. So because of these kind of existential threats, because of this war, it's the, mor- the answer the is morality Trump. of our country one plus one equals Trump. deteriorated horribly. We're not the country that we should be or, or were or was. And it's got to stop. We're on a slippery slope. Some likely Republican caucus goers in Iowa earlier this year with political reporter Asted Herndon from the New York Times, who's my guest. Uh, wow, Asted, uh, <laughs> child pedophilia, child sex trafficking, the whole thing. Did you find a lot of people at the Iowa State Fair who buy into that particular kind of conspiracy theory? Absolutely. And I would say that that was not the only person to mention specifically the Sound of Freedom movie, which was, of course, kind of a rallying cry on these specific fronts. I mean, I think that that woman's articulation of her voting reasoning is something that has become really familiar to us as we talk to more Republicans. There is a a sense that because of the direction the country has moved in, whether that was under Obama or whether it continued under uh, of this Biden term, but it's really around kind of social factors, as she describes morality and, and the kind of conspiracy level there. But it really is, you know, rising social justice movements, increasing acceptance of LGBTQ people. Like the, there is just a litany of things that these folks bring up as a reason of why that really points them to Donald, to, to Donald Trump. And so, you know, I would ask, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, these other candidates also say that they can uh, kind of bring back a more traditional version of America uh, without the drama of Trump. And they would explicitly reject the idea that they trust those other candidates to really, quote unquote, deliver on the fight in the way that Trump does. And there's a certain level of, um, I'm going to say this artfully, but there's a certain level of punishment that Donald Trump promises for his political opponents that is that is what some of these voters are looking for, right? So in another uh, episode for the show, we went to uh, a country music concert, Jason Aldean concert in Des Moines, Iowa, and kind of we're talking to people about similar things. And there, I, there was a couple people who I rem- really remember um, really owning the idea that it wasn't just that Donald Trump was a person who was going to uh, uh, you know, pass a certain policy or, or espouse a certain political opinion that they, that they like. It's that he was going to punish opponents that they didn't like. And that is also part of those values too. And so when we think about Trump versus the Republican field, I think we have to think back to each side of that coin. What that woman's saying here 
It's not just that there is a sense of urgency because of these things that she believes is happening and wants to push back against. She wants someone in there that is not only going to espouse those views, but promise to really inflict punishment on political opponents. And, you know, when Donald Trump says, I am your retribution, for some on the Republican base, that is a appetizing message. So based on the clip that we just played, we're going to play one more from that episode and what you were just describing, what's what I'm not hearing is specific items of policy to yeah. improve people's lives. Did that come up from a lot of the Iowa voters, the economy, anything really tangible like that? Yeah, you would hear some of that. You hear how the economy was maybe in a better place or they would talk about things like inflation that don't necessarily match up with the economic data. But it's not it, it really I don't want to overdo it, though, because it's not that policy specific. It's not as if, you know, there are citing specific things that happen in Trump's administration as a reason of something needs to come back. Taxes or, or kind of traditional policy concerns. It is much more of a of a vibe, I have to say, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just much more of a feeling of loss that they want to reclaim and that he's the one who promises that alongside with it. When you hear, you know, I've talked to supporters of other candidates and you'll hear supporters of Nikki Haley talk about her stance on Israel Gaza. You'll hear uh, uh, supporters of Ron DeSantis talk specifically about what he's done in Florida to combat liberal colleges or such. You don't really hear Trump supporters talk like that because it's more of a mantra of strength rather it is a kind of recitation of policy specific. In your reporting so far on this election cycle, do you also hear Democratic voters um, reflecting a vibe more than specific policies? Certainly. And I think that really speaks to the group of Democratic voters that polling and kind of anecdotal reporting tells us that Joe Biden has struggled the most with in this year, which is kind of a base core voter. So we think about young people. We think about uh, working class people of color. Uh, we think about these are kind of groups where has had that's reported softer support for the president in the White House. And that's really what's been kind of causing his polling struggles so far. When you talk to people in the middle, the swing voters, the independents, the type of people who help Democrats in the midterms, they're still feeling pretty fine about Joe Biden, particularly in relationship to the Republican alternative, likely Donald Trump on the other side. What you're having more difficulty if you're the White House is, is in people who are maybe marginal voters, people who may not vote in the presidential election, who are kind of leaning Democratic, but are increasingly feeling distanced from the party. Now, with young people, that's been exploded by the conflict in uh, uh, in Gaza. I mean, there has been uh, numbers and our own reporting. And I know the White House and kind of party has had to really uh, think about whether the normal prioritization, which says that American voters aren't typically foreign policy focused when it comes to presidential elections, whether that old kind of adage is still going to remain true. We went to the Biden campaign directly and asked them about this two to three months ago. And their hope their answer basically was that when it comes down, when the alternative becomes real, when the choice becomes uh, a tangible, whether it be Biden versus Trump or whether it be what transpires through this year, they really believe that they have done enough kind of policy wise and that the Republicans on the other side are going to kind of force the uh, people's hands to come back around to Biden. But I think that that's a real risky bet, because to your point, we are increasingly hearing Democrats say what, it, you know, a, a certain sect of Democrats say, like, 
that their um their motivation isn't the same and i think it's specifically true for young people and specifically true for young uh for working class people of color so i've got an excerpt from your thanksgiving podcast queued up but would you set up the general premise for our listeners real briefly how did you use that poll as a jumping off point to interview i guess basically your relatives and some neighbors right yeah, exactly. So, you know, when I saw those polling numbers, one of the things that, you know, I, I really believe is that polling can point you to a to a theme, to a, a, a direction, but it doesn't give you the why of some, why someone's feeling like that, right? They'll say if they're backing someone or, how, or maybe if they approve or don't approve, but we don't get the backstory behind what kind of leads a voter to that point. So one of the things that I wanted to do was really trace the arc of Black people's relationship with Democrats, basically from that 2012 time until now. And being someone who's from, you know, uh, uh, Chicago, being from someone who kind of had, uh, have had some of these conversations in my personal life, and also being someone who loves Thanksgiving, I decided to kind of just combine all of those things in one and really got a nice community of people from my own life, including friends and family, including some of my parents and, you know, friends, extended family, who all came over uh, uh, the week before Thanksgiving. And we had a kind of makeshift holiday where we set up our own sort of focus groups. And we really focused on two divisions that also were really clear in the poll, a generational divide kind of between older Black voters and a younger set, and then a gender divide between Black women and men. And I think in those conversations, we were able to have really kind of open discussions that got to some of the why behind those numbers. And I think matched up with the reality that says, you know, maybe necessarily no, I, you know, one question I have for these people was, why do we think Black people vote for Democrats in such numbers, considering it is unique to demographic groups? And I think that the answer we really got was that more so than identifying with Democrats, there was a sense that Black voters did not identify with the modern Republican Party, and that was a rejection of them more than an embrace of Democrats. And that really came through in those in those discussions. And so this clip begins with a follow-up question that you're asking, coming right out of the ideas you were just describing, uh, and it will be clear when it begins, which is right now. As a follow-up to the first question I asked about why do you think Black people vote for Democrats in such numbers, do you think that's changing? I mean, the sad do you think the relationship between is, the Black people and the party is changing? The sad part about it is yes. Even on my job, like, these younger, like, so you have more Black people that are owning their own business, they're entrepreneurs, and so the benefit that they're seeing is that, oh, it's helping me financially. And so, you know, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, what have they done for me? You know, the Republican Party can give me these tax cuts and give me this and give me that. It boils down to like those type of issues. And then they look at the Democratic Party and they're like, well, Biden, I mean, look at this. We got all these immigrants. He ain't doing this. He ain't doing that. But it's always the plus for the Republican side because it's benefiting them tangibly. So, so as, uh, Ester, do you want to put that clip in context for us? And I mean, there's an assumption in that answer that Democrats would vigorously contest, and that's that Republican economics are better for their families. So I'm curious if that debate broke out at all in relation to that answer and anything you want to say to contextualize that clip. kind of Republican uh, uh, talking points, but you aren't actually, you don't see that. They talked about Democrats' relationship with unions and that being a helpful driver of kind of working class community. So those discussions were happening out in the open. But what I think was coming through there was, uh, you know, people kept mentioning 
um, the pandemic checks in 2020 as something that people latched onto as a tangible benefit that came from a Republican president, also a Democratic Congress. But uh, but, you know, and I think that like those type of things really speak to a broader question of what cuts through the noise. Right. And I think this is something that the Biden administration is really finding here. They have a, a, a big, long list of policy accomplishments, you know, from the IRA to CHIPS Act and the like infrastructure bill. Uh, but the question is, like, what is what are voters feeling as tangible impacts? And so when something like uh, student loan cancellation gets struck down, right, it fuels a sense, particularly among some younger voters, that nothing is changing or that the kind of biggest swings at uh, social change are really uh, that the political system isn't accommodating of those. And that kind of dread is kind of a, 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 a self-fulfilling cycle. Someone else said in that conversation about how, you know, they were part of the organizing efforts for Obama's uh, first and second victory in Chicago. And that one of the things that they've recognized is that the same people that they really motivated to get involved at that time they have a really hard time re-motivating them now because there was a sense that like not that much changed. And so, you know, we know that that's not fully true. We can point to things that definitely come from that. Uh, but that is what I'm talking about in terms of what cuts through and what what makes people feel as if government's actually working. So if you're the Biden administration, you have to ask yourself, what is going to be the pieces that specifically resonate with this group that's not as politically engaged, that's not as motivated to come to the polls, and does not identify with the party as deeply? And so those are only going to be certain issues and certain messengers that can really reach them. And that's the struggle they're having right now. Mark in North Bergen, you're on WNYC. Hi, Mark. Thank you for calling in. Hi, how are you? Happy New Year's, everyone. You too. Um, so I just wanted to say that I come from a predominantly uh, black Muslim family. We, some of us are, you know, just normal Sunni Muslims, and some of us are a nation of Islam. And uh, we feel a strong connection to our, you know, brothers back in Palestine and in Sudan and in many other areas. So we just feel absolutely betrayed by Joe Biden for allowing the genocide to happen and a lot of people feel like they're not going to vote for Biden and they're sure as hell not going to vote for Trump but there's this sentiment where they want to teach the Democrats a lesson they want the Democrats to know that we 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 were affected by what you did so there's that strong feeling of just mm -hmm. betrayal amongst black Muslims Muslims in general How and that's much where my how much tension do you think the people you're describing are experiencing between what you just said and the fact that not voting for either of them is, in effect, a vote for Trump, making it more likely that Trump will become president again with how much worse that might be? It, it, it's, it's almost like the, the feeling of it, it's, it's bringing back past traumas in a way because many black people felt that when they were being abused, when they were being, you know, uh, oppressed, that the media and the political sphere were, were, would ignore them in a way and gaslight them and act like nothing's happening. So all those past traumas are in a way, you know, making these people so angry that they, they don't even care whether it's Trump. They just want to mm -hmm. teach Biden, Kirby, mm -hmm. Blinken, 
all those mm-hmm. people. They mm-hmm. just want to teach them a lesson. And it, it's really, that anger is palpable. I see it every day. Mark, thank you very much. Call us again. And I'll just acknowledge, since he used the word genocide, that there are many people who say that's um, not an appropriate word for this, and both sides are accusing the other of wanting genocide. So I'm just acknowledging that there are points of view on that. But there we have to leave it with Estead Herndon, national politics reporter for The New York Times and host of the National Politics Podcast called The Run-Up. So you were here on January 5th last year. January 2nd now, this year, we're going to have to have you on before January 3rd, 2025. Absolutely. uh, Talk to you, Asted. Thank you very much for today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.